Welcome to the College-Wide Graduate Institute Summer Lecture um, Series. My name is Emily Langston and I'm the Associate Dean for Graduate Programs in Annapolis. And I'm happy to greet students, staff, faculty members, and alumni from both campuses, as well as prospective students and other friends of the college in this virtual space this evening. I should also mention before I introduce tonight's speakers that this series continues um, this coming Tuesday evening, June the 30th, with a talk by Elizabeth Sabaka, um, Sabaka Eastman entitled Reflections on the Bill of Rights. And then on the evening of Wednesday, July 1st, we will present an online panel of faculty from five different community colleges around the country conversing about the importance of discussion-based liberal education in community college. Information on how to join any of the Wednesday night or Tuesday night events can be found on our website and will also be distributed by email. I'm happy now to introduce my colleague, Bill Braithwaite. Bill and I have been friends for many years. In fact, since we both arrived to teach on the Annapolis campus in 1995. I asked him how he would like to be introduced for this lecture, and he said, as a retired sophist. I think what he means by this is that he is a retired trial lawyer who in a past life has been adept at making the weaker argument the stronger. Now in his retirement, though, he invites us to join him in reading together online this dialogue that begins with a question about the teaching of virtue. After the lecture, please join us for the question period by clicking on the link in the question and answer section on the right of your screen. And now I'll turn it over to Mr. Braithwaite. Uh, good evening. Uh, it's a miracle that though I can't see you, I trust that you are there. Thank you for being there wherever you are. This will be more an essay than a lecture. Mostly I tried to describe and comment on some things I noticed while reading Plato's Mino more slowly than we have time for during the regular school year. The essay was taking its final shape last Sunday. Father's Day in the United States. So I offer it as a token of gratitude and respect to my sons and their mothers. Uh, living with them the last 50 years illustrated the home virtues. Courtesy every day. Doing your share straight speaking and patient listening, helping out, settling quarrels, good manners. The civic or political virtues, especially prudence, good judgment in the city's practical affairs is an explicit theme in the dialogue. The home is in the background. Domestic life is only hinted at in the person of the boy in the geometry demonstration scene. Mino says he was born in the house. About Mino's domestic life, the dialogue is almost silent. Mino is now rich and politically ambitious. He has powerful friends, is a polished public speaker. 
but he was once a boy. What did he learn at home? Was he taught different things by his mother than by his father? In particular, did she show him how to care for others? If you haven't first learned sociability, the seed of friendship, can you become capable of learning what is truly beneficial for a whole city? Part one, beginning and ending. Mino speaks first and Socrates last, 45 pages later. Mino starts them talking with a question and Socrates ends their exchanges after two to two and a half hours by saying, now it's time for me to go. He doesn't say why he has to leave. Can you tell me, Socrates, whether virtue is something teachable? Or is it not teachable, but something that comes from practice? Or is it something neither from practice nor from learning, but something that comes to human beings by nature or some other way? Mino's question is double. One question inside another one. The inside question is how is virtue acquired? The outside question is, can you tell me Socrates? That is, can you tell me how virtue is acquired? It's not immediately clear why Socrates chooses, uh, why Mino chooses Socrates as the man to ask how virtue is acquired. It appears at first as if for Mino, the question of teachability is foremost. It emerges later that he is at least as interested to find out whether Socrates is the one who knows and is also the one who can tell him whether virtue is teachable. If Socrates can teach virtue, it must be teachable. And if Socrates by teaching virtue to Mino can even demonstrate its teachability, then Mino would have found the teacher whom his questions suggest he may be seeking. Socrates' immediate response is for him, the question that really should be asked is different from either one of those which Mino has actually asked. I am so far from knowing about virtue, whether it is something teachable or not teachable, that I happen not to know at all what that thing, virtue itself, is. What virtue is, according to Socrates, is prior to the question whether it is the kind of thing that is teachable. Like Mino's question, Socrates' response looks like one, but turns out to be two. Socrates might know things about virtue which he cannot say, or say clearly, or even put into words at all. In this event, whatever he knows would have to be shown or seen 
in some other way. The truth about virtue might be a truth that is not speakable. Knowledge and speech, knowing and speaking, what we know and what we are able to explain are not the same thing. Still, conversing with others can help us think through what we meant when we have expressed an opinion spontaneously without much forethought. The question, what is virtue, which Socrates puts forward at the very beginning, he repeats in the middle of the dialogue and again at the end when he is leaving. He is the principal speaker. He has more lines than Mino. Plato so arranges the speeches that Socrates exchanges with Mino can appear to the reader when seen from Socrates' point of view to be a single uninterrupted conversation directed at one and the same question throughout. Mino has a different experience. He asks his question one way at the beginning, reformulates it in the middle, and at the end accepts a third version which is proposed by Socrates. His exchanges with Socrates are interrupted twice, first by the geometry demonstration and later by the Socrates Anatus scene. In both places, Mino takes the role of a spectator more than a speaker. Mino's exchanges with Socrates can appear to the reader when seen from Mino's point of view to be arranged in three sets rather than one continuous whole. His question, too, keeps breaking apart. It first looks like one, turns out to be two. Socrates transforms it into three with a response that is itself twofold, linking and separating knowledge and speech. By the end of the first exchange, the one question that started Socrates and Mino talking has generated five others. They do not agree on which of these is primary. When we talk past one another like this, we risk falling into strife and contention, as Socrates puts it. Discovering that Mino, when questioned closely, becomes cross and irritable. Socrates invites him several times to answer in a more gentle and dialectical way. Socrates even shows Mino how to do this, but Mino does not see, and each time he declines the invitation. Mino has his own point of view, his own truth, and he likes it. In the middle of the dialogue, he makes explicit, though apparently politely, that he prefers his own questions and opinions over those of Socrates. He seems to lack any inclination toward looking at things in friendly company with someone else. Is Mino's 
unsociableness, a natural disposition. His outside question, can you tell me, Socrates, directs attention to what Socrates knows and to whether he has the ability to tell me know what he knows. How this twofold question is answered, if it is answered, is not easy to say. The dialogue taken as a whole ought to provide some answer, or perhaps an image of one. Mino's inside question, how is virtue acquired, directs attention to the sort of thing virtue is. Is it a teachable thing? An ability got through practice? A thing that comes by nature? Or does it come to human beings some other way? At the beginning, Socrates answers in effect, none of these. I don't even know what virtue is, so I can't know how it's acquired. He tells me, no, he's asking the wrong question. The right question is, what's, what is virtue? But at the end, Socrates chooses, in effect, Mino's fourth option, some other way. He says, if we in this whole account both searched rightly and were speaking, and were speaking rightly, virtue would be neither by nature nor something teachable, but has come by divine dispensation. Virtue is a gift of the gods. Socrates' two answers, one at the beginning, a different one at the end, appear inconsistent. They don't seem to fit together. In this respect, he is like the poet, Theognis, who, so Socrates claims in the final scene, contradicts himself. Socrates' closing summation of the options Mino presents in his opening question is also slanted. Mino presents four possibilities, or five if we count teaching and learning as two different activities. But at the end, Socrates mentions only three, nature, teaching, and divine dispensation. He omits practice and learning. He does not explain these omissions, and Mino does not comment. Part two, the middle of the whole. Except when he commands the slave boy, you, come here. Mino speaks only to Socrates. Socrates, however, converses with the boy and also has exchanges with Anatus as well as with Mino. The order of appearance of those who engage with Socrates is Mino, boy, Mino, Anatus, Mino. The five sets of speeches look like the acts of a stage play. But Plato provides no stage directions, 
such as Act One, Scene One, Elsinore, Platform of the Castle. No indications for costumes or scenery or stage props either, except Mino's use of the boy he regards as his slave. Plato so arranges the flow of the speeches that there is a clear beginning, middle, and end. This feature, too, resembles a theater play. But in Plato's script, there is no explicit indication that anything other than speeches is to happen. There is no visible action or onstage movement, as in Hamlet except Socrates drawing geometrical figures in the sand. Perhaps doing geometry is some sort of action. The opening scene begins with Mino's question and Socrates' first response. The last scene, as it draws to a close, presents Socrates' summation of the arguments and his final answers to Mino's questions. The three middle scenes together form a picture inside a frame. The frame is scenes two and four, the geometry demonstration and Anatus' splenetic excoriation of the sophist, none of whom he has ever met. In the frame scenes two and four, Mino is a silent spectator, or mostly so. What we see in scene three, the middle of the whole dialogue, is the picture in the frame. It is here that we learn what Mino has been thinking about as he watched the geometry demonstration. As the boy with Socrates guiding him looks for the line that produces the double square, Mino has a front seat. He looks at the demonstration, but he does not see in it what Socrates invited him to watch for. He is not a very good spectator. The demonstration comes about when Socrates agrees to try to show Mino that learning is recollection. An idea Socrates claims he got from certain priests priestesses, and poets. During the demonstration, Socrates guides the boy to realize that he does not know what he thought he knew. He thought that doubling the length of a line would double the area of the square on the original line. He is wrong. The proofs of this are in Euclid, Elements, Book One, Propositions 22 and 47. As the geometry demonstration comes to an end, Socrates tells the boy that the sophist call diagonal, the line that produces the double square. The boy thus acquires a true opinion. It is true because the line the boy sought is indeed the slanting one that Socrates drew in the sand for everyone to see. 
across the square, top to bottom, left to right. But the name diagonal is a kind of opinion. It is not knowledge. If we look not at the square, but to the triangle, whose right angle, that slanting line stretches under, we call the line hypotenuse. If the square or the right triangle is inscribed in a circle, we call the line diameter. Names help us when we are speaking or writing to place particular ideas in the foreground of attention. But the name is not the thing. What is most worth knowing, Socrates suggests, is what the thing really is, apart from its names. Names are just signs, like the one outside Athens, which says, Larissa, 140 miles, with an arrow pointing north. Mino calls his boy slave, but the boy's capacity for wonder and enthusiasm is greater than that of the man who calls himself the boy's master. In this respect, the boy is not at all slavish. If enthusiasm is essential to the capacity for learning, the boy may even have in him the seed of growing into a free man. This potency may be something godlike. Is every human being born with it? When Socrates asked the boy, after illustrating to him that his several guesses are wrong, to either tell the length or show in the drawing which is the line they seek, he replies, but by Zeus, Socrates, I for one do not know. Hearing a good actor speak this line would make the boy's amazed excitement jump right off the page. Having discovered his ignorance, the boy may be eager to cure it. Socrates told Mino the story about priest, priestesses and poets, learning and recollection. In response to a paradox, Mino challenged him with, how is learning even possible? If you don't already know, you can't know what you're looking for, can you? And even if you find it, how will you recognize that what you have found is what you were seeking? Mino thinks this argument is, quote, beautiful. Socrates disagrees. He doesn't say whether he thinks the argument is not beautiful or not true. What he does say is that it makes us lazy. In the geometry demonstration, Mino has an opportunity to watch someone 
who is not lazy, making efforts to learn. But Mino does not see. When Mino looks at the boy, what he sees is an animate instrument with the generic name, boy. Instruments don't have names that belong specially to them or desires that masters must take account of. Their work is obedience to come when called. Mino cannot see in this boy the possible seed of a free man. Is this because he lacks such a seed in himself? Like Hamlet, Socrates puts on a play, the geometry demonstration, in order to find out something. Since it is also Socrates who brings Anatus into the inquiry, we could say he produces two plays. The plot of the Anatus scene involves the question whether fathers are able to teach virtue to their sons. After the geometry demonstration, Socrates persuades Mino to agree that the boy is better off for having made the effort to seek for what he did not know and to recollect what he at first did not remember. He then says to Mino at the beginning of scene three, do you want us then, since we are of one mind that one ought to seek for what one does not know, to try to seek in common for what virtue is? Mino declines. Socrates' words are polite. Do you want us? These are words of courtesy and invitation. What would you like to do? Let us do it together. We are of one mind, as friends are, and we have, like friends, reached agreement. Agreement on one important thing about learning. It starts with making an effort. We can seek in common. Let's be a community of two. Mino responds, by all means. Not Socrates, but that I would with most pleasure, both look for and hear about that which I asked about at first, whether one ought to undertake it as being itself teachable or by nature, or as in whatever way virtue comes to human beings. Socrates, you know, if I were ruling not only myself, but you too, we would not first look at whether virtue is something teachable or not teachable before we first sought what it itself is. But since you don't even try to rule yourself in order indeed 
that you might be free. You both try to rule me and do rule me. I will yield to you. Scene three, the middle of the whole dialogue is a turning point. Both Socrates and Mino change their minds. There is movement in this unspectacular drama, but it is interior movement. The sign of Socrates' change of mind is that he gives up pressing Mino about the wetness of virtue. The sign of Mino's change of mind is that he misquotes his opening question. At the beginning, he presented Socrates four or five options of how virtue is acquired. Here in scene three, he mentions only three. He omits practice and learning. Perhaps he learned something from the geometry demonstration. Part three, images. The first scene in the dialogue is the longest of the five, in length about one third of the whole. It is framed at the beginning and at the end by two memorable images, the swarm of bees and the torpedo fish which we call the electric steamway. In this scene, if it is like the first act of a well-made play, most or all the main themes appear. Some are in the foreground, others are sketchily implied or hinted at only by their shadows. The swarm of bees is Socrates' image of the first of Mino's three or four attempts to say what virtue is. Mino tries to express his ideas as definitions, word formulations with some sort of shape and limit. None of his definitions stands up. Worse, by the end of scene one, he has been thoroughly humiliated. His entourage, his many followers, have been witnesses, silent spectators of the demonstration that his usual self-confident manner in public speaking wilts under the bright light of Socratic questioning. This manner of speech he acquired from Gorgias, his public speaking coach. Mino has practiced it, he says, in a great many speeches about virtue. But he learns in scene one that he cannot use it to charm Socrates the way Gorgias charmed him with it. Speaking grandly, as if he knew and understood what he was talking about. Mino's pride is stung. At the end of the scene, 
he retaliates. He resorts to name calling. Before I met you, he says to Socrates, I had heard that you live in a state of perplexity and can put others in the same state. Then he pretends that the name he is about to call Socrates is all in fun. If I can make a little joke, he continues, you seem to me altogether like the torpedo fish, which numbs what it touches. By altogether, Mino explains, he means both in looks and other respects. The torpedo fish is a flat, disproportionately wide sea creature with two bulging eyes on the top of its head. It is ugly. It stings with its whip-like tail. Here in the middle of the dialogue, as also at the beginning and at the end, Socrates invites Mino to speak as if the two of them are friends. On each of these occasions, indeed throughout, Mino declines. Friendly speech is hard for him. How did he get to be like this? He continues, why thousands of times I've made a great many speeches about virtue and before many people and done very well, in my own opinion. And yet now I'm altogether unable to say what it is truly in soul and in mouth. I am dumb. The expensively coached and much practiced public speaker is struck dumb by the torpedo fish. He has no more definitions, no more answers. Mino concludes with what could look like friendly advice to Socrates. It seems to me you are well advised not to sail away or emigrate from here. For if you, a foreigner in a different city, were to do this sort of thing, you would probably be arrested as a sorcerer. If the dialogue were being staged, how would a good actor speak those lines? Having studied the whole script, this actor would know that Mino is himself a foreigner in a different city, a city not his own. He is from Larissa, the chief city in Thessaly, about 140 miles north of Athens. Besides being wealthy and ambitious, he is politically well-connected. His lover, Aristippus, belongs to one of the leading local families. Some of these men, besides Mino, have studied public speaking with Gorgias, the sophist. Anatus, at the end of scene four, speaks to Socrates using words of much the same tenor and with the pretense of friendliness, just as Mino. The same words Mino speaks at the end of scene one. Anatus says, 
Socrates, I could give you some advice if you're willing to be persuaded by me to be careful since it is perhaps easier to do harm to people than to benefit them in other cities too. And in this city, that is certainly so. But I suppose you know this yourself. In Athens, Anatus, like Mino in Larissa, is politically prominent. Probably a native Athenian, he was brought up and educated there. He seems to have what we might call a working class background since his father acquired his wealth. That is, he did not inherit it or get it by gift or chance. In democratic Athens, he has been elected to the highest offices. In their reactions to Socrates' questions, Anatus, the Athenian Democrat, and Mino, the aristocratic foreigner from Larissa, are brothers under the skin. They fear and hate Socrates because he has a power that seems to them, in Mino's words, like witchcraft or sorcery. Mino accuses him of dispensing mind-numbing drugs. Beneath the advice that Mino and Anatus present as if it's benevolent lies a dark threat. Seen in light of his anger at being publicly humiliated and his fear of Socrates' demonic power with words, Mino's closing remark, unmasked, may mean something like this. Socrates, you have made a fool of me in public. And being a foreigner here, I am powerless to do much about it. But in my hometown, I have political connections. And if you come up there to practice your tricks, I'll shut you up by seeing that you're put in jail. Between the angry Mino and the angry Anatus is the nameless boy, still young enough to be innocent of political ambition. The things he has not studied besides geometry include public speaking. He has not learned seductive words or how to conceal his fear by speaking fearlessly or to mask his enmity with a show of friendliness. Naive that he is, the boy just blurts out what he really thinks. But by Zeus, Socrates, I for one do not know. All these things just sketched hover in the background of Mino's torpedo fish speech. Only a first-rate actor would be able to make us hear all the complex overtones in that speech. It would be helpful experience if he had played a lot of Shakespeare. Iago, for example, the prince 
of innuendo, or King Claudius, a consummate hypocrite. Part four, place, being present. As scene three draws to a close, Mino and Socrates have agreed that if virtue is knowledge, it is teachable. They have also agreed that if anything is teachable, not only virtue, there must be teachers and learners of it. Mino then asks, probably in a tone of surprise, but does it seem to you that there are no teachers of virtue? Scene four, about six pages, is the shortest of the five. It begins with Socrates' reply to Mino's question. I've looked high and low for a teacher of virtue, he says, and never found one, but I continue to search. And now indeed, Mino, just at the right moment, Anatus here has sat down beside us, to whom we should give a share in the search. It's not quite clear whether Anatus just arrived or has been present all along, but it is clear that he is present for the remainder of the dialogue, scenes four and five. Socrates says at the end, now it's time for me to go, but you persuade your guest friend Anatus here too about these very same things that you yourself have been persuaded. Back at the beginning, Mino conceded that his opinion about what virtue is was then the same as that of his public speaking teacher, Gorgias. Socrates responds, then let's let him go, since in fact, he is not here. Gorgias is not here, that is, in Athens, but Anatus is here, both in time, just at the right moment, Socrates says, and also in the right place. He is in political office in Athens, Socrates' hometown. In Athens, Anatus' opinions could be influential about what virtue is and how young men can learn or be taught it. Gorgias, we may suppose, is in Larissa. To Anatus the Athenian, Larissa is a foreign city. He's never been there, has no experience of it. Mino, on the other hand, is, in Athens, a foreign. But he has enough experience of political power in Larissa to know that as a foreigner, he has little or no political power here in Athens. Democratic Athens distrust foreigners, but can be charmed by them. One of the first questions many new college freshman roommates ask one another is, where are you from? Learning who someone is often starts with finding out their connections with places, where they are from, 
where their family lives and works, where they went to high school. The places we have been and what we did there reveal something about what kind of person we have become. That Gorgias is not here in Athens where the dialogue is happening. It's not exactly true. He is present in the person of his student surrogate, Mino, an imitator of his teacher. About the central question of what virtue is, Mino has the same opinion as Gorgias. From Gorgias, he also learned the habit, practiced and a great many speeches of putting on the costume of self-confidence. In scene one, he wears the habit he bought from Gorgias until Socrates unmasks him. By the time he makes the torpedo fish speech, he has begun to feel a bit naked. Mino is a Gorgias pretender. He aspires to be or become a lookalike of his teacher, at least insofar as this serves his political ambitions. But he is just an ape of Gorgias, not a very good imitator. Can we spot a fake when we have not seen the genuine article? Anatus is very certain that he can. About Sophist, he says, by Zeus, I never associated with any of them and I would not allow anyone else of my people to do so. Socrates, then you are altogether without experience of these men? Anatus, I am, and may I remain so. Socrates presses him. How do you know whether sophists are good or bad, since you are altogether without experience of Anatus? Easily. I still know what these people are like, whether I am without experience of them or not. Here, at this point in the dialogue, we can hear another echo between Anatus and Mino. Back at the beginning, when Socrates asked him, what do you declare virtue to be? Mino prefaced his list of virtues with an easy verbal swagger. Oh, that's not hard. In the torpedo fish speech, Mino accuses Socrates of subduing him by using drugs and incantations. When Anatus says, in effect, I know what I know because I know what I know. Is he numbing himself, trying to stifle his embarrassment and fear with a sort of incantation? 
Anatus in scene four has angry and passionate intensity in the place where the boy in scene two feels enthusiastic amazement. Should we now add experience to Mino's original four or five options for the ways virtue could be acquired? If Anatus thinks virtue is acquired by experience, like his own in practical politics, one reason he is so angry might be that Socrates demolishes this opinion just as thoroughly as he demolished Mino's definitions in scene one. Asked by Socrates to name a teacher of virtue, Anatus answers, any Athenian gentleman. How should the actor playing Anatus speak this line? In a slightly evasive tone of voice? Anybody is not a straight answer when somebody politely asks you Please name one. Part five, teaching and learning. Mino's opening question gave Socrates four options to choose among as ways virtue is acquired, or five if teaching and learning are different. In scene three, Mino drops practice. He found out through personal experience that the habits he bought from Gorgias do not work when he tries to practice them on Socrates. If he could learn new and better habits, he could practice them. But being blind to the boy's efforts to practice geometry, Mino can't see what new habits he should form and not knowing what they are, he can't see how to get them. Experience does teach us some things. Don't touch a hot stove or a torpedo fish. But some things appear not to be learnable through experience. Anatus gets angry when Socrates shows him that prominent and able Athenian statesmen have not in fact taught their sons the political prudence they themselves exhibit. The reason Socrates proposes to Anatus is that they did not know how. Socrates' final answer to Mino's question is that virtue is a gift of the gods. But he qualifies this answer with, if we searched rightly, and we're speaking rightly. Whether Mino, with Socrates trying to guide him, searched rightly and spoke rightly is left to the speculation of readers. Nature as a cause or source of virtue is addressed, albeit indirectly in scene four, in Socrates' examples of Athenian fathers who did not teach political prudence to their sons. Good judgment evidently is not inheritable. The possibility is not explored in this dialogue that fathers could learn to be better teachers of their sons 
if they withdrew from public life and so had more time and leisure for private affairs, such as homeschooling and reading Plato. Also not explored in this dialogue is the meaning of divine dispensation. If practice, experience, nature, and gift of the gods are eliminated, what remains is teaching and learning. The teachability of virtue is a question throughout, although sometimes in the background. For Mino, this is always the primary question. He comes to Athens conflicted about it. Early in scene five, shortly after Socrates dismisses Anatus, Mino says he admires Gorgias for claiming to teach public speaking only. Gorgias, he says, is never heard promising to teach virtue. In fact, Mino reports, Gorgias laughs at other sophists who promised this. When he is asked directly whether the sophists seem to him to be teachers, Mino answers, I cannot say, Socrates, for I too undergo the very same thing most people do. Sometimes it seems to me they are, and sometimes not. In scene four, Socrates pointed out to Anatus, while Mino sat by, that Protagoras, a sophist of the older generation, traveled Greece for 40 years, promising to teach virtue, and apparently being believed since he got quite rich doing it. Anatus' opinion, based on hearsay, is that all Protagoras really had was the cunning to persuade wealthy fathers to pay him handsomely on the grounds of his promise that he could teach their politically ambitious sons how to achieve worldly success. Mino is torn. His opinions are divided by, between two factions of sophists, the Protagoreans who claim to teach virtue and the Gorgians who claim to teach only public speaking. What he seems to be unsure about is whether being a good man or being a smooth man, a persuasive public speaker is better. That is better training for politics. Seen in this light, his outside question at the beginning, can you tell me, Socrates, is revealed as his real question. He has paid Gorgias to teach him public speaking, but he has heard about a man in Athens whose power with words can so perplex others that they become numb in soul and mouth. He may also have heard that Socrates doesn't charge. 
his conversation is free. He apparently has no steady job since he is ready anytime to talk with anybody about any subject for as long as, well, how long is Socrates willing to talk with Mino? Their exchanges last about two and a half hours, but then Socrates says he has to leave. He doesn't explain why. On his way from Larissa to Athens, was Mino wondering whether Socrates might be a better teacher of public speaking than Gorgias? If he could get from Socrates for free better public speaking habits than Gorgias charges him for, he could get what he wants more cheaply in a foreign city. What Mino really wants is suggested by two episodes. The first in scene one, the other in scene five. Socrates proposes in scene one, the definition, shape is what always accompanies color, or it is where solid ends. Mino then asks Socrates to define color. And Socrates proposes in the style of Gorgias, as he says, and following Empedocles, that color is an effluence of shapes commensurate with sight and perceptible. Mino thinks this answer is just grand, the best possible. And he promises to stay in Athens if Socrates would tell him more answers like it. In scene five, Socrates proposes that someone who did not know the road to Larissa because he had never been there could nevertheless give the right directions if he had a right opinion what they were. Mino agrees. If this trip to Athens was Mino's first, he got here by relying on a guide. But now that he knows the way himself, he could return without one. It's one in the same road in two directions, which he now knows from experience. He came to Athens under Gorgias' shadow. In Athens, he remains in the shadow of his teacher. He would stay if Socrates talked more like Gorgias. He will go home angry at Socrates and now also angry at Gorgias, who he has been shown, sold him shoddy habits of speech. We readers could wonder whether Mino's soul ever left Larissa. Wherever Mino is, his mind seems to be somewhere else. During the geometry demonstration, he's calculating 
how to get back at Socrates for paralyzing his tongue. He hits on the paradox that learning is impossible, but Socrates brushes its logic aside. He does pay attention in scene four, as Socrates challenges Anatus' opinion that any Athenian gentleman can teach virtue better than any sophist. We know this because in scene five, Mino reports that things are much the the same in Thessaly. There's no agreement there either about whether the, either the sophist or the political men in Larissa can teach virtue. Mino seems to believe that teachability is a question about teachers. He does not consider that it may also be a question about students. It's been said that if the student fails to learn, the teacher has failed to teach. On this hypothesis, teacher ability can be measured by students' scores on achievement tests. But learning could be separate and different from teaching while still being yoked together with it. This opinion supposes that the teacher and learner must work together in tandem as a pair. Seen this way, learning can start to happen when the teacher and student agree on what their primary question is. In the beginning, the student cannot know this, but the teacher must know it, or at least ought to know how to guide the two of them in finding the right path and the direction toward it. The best teachers, we may suppose, will know the right path and where it goes because they found their own way there by experience and practice. The best learners will want also to find their own way. Some beginners, like the boy, may not believe that learning is possible for them. Learning geometry, for example. If by chance or providence, they happen to meet someone who stirs up their soul, as Socrates stirs up the boy's soul, then love of learning might awaken spontaneously. The boy's eagerness to find the line would ignite at the same time he is shocked to realize that he does not know what it is. He cannot say it or even point to it. Discovery of ignorance and eros for learning could be twins born at the same time, brother and sister. Thank you.